This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles, where uh, this week in our Advent series, as Gary said, we'll be looking at joy, which I think is especially important because not only is that what our that, not only is that what our culture is selling this time of year, but it's what millions of Americans are buying. If you buy our product, our culture says, your family will sing songs around the fireplace, all the kids will go to bed on time, they'll all wake up in the morning smiling at each other, you know, lies like that. If you don't believe me, I'd refer you to the trillion-dollar Christmas industry. However, for for so many of those who do buy into our culture's product, what they're selling, the joy, unfortunately, that that quickly evaporates on December 26th. There's even an official term for this called post-holiday depression. Listen to how psychologist Melissa Weinberg describes this phenomenon. She says, even if your holidays aren't so merry and bright, Our brains exaggerate the dreary realities of day-to-day life, making the return to the mundane seem disproportionately more depressing than it actually is. Let me put that into English for you. For about three to four weeks, we tell ourselves this is fun. No, seriously, the TV said this is fun. I said this is fun. That's what we do for a few weeks, and, and... then the, the bills and the relationships and the, the newness come into contact with reality and we're reminded that something's broken. And I'm not just talking about your new TV. Which, by the way, why do all these commercials have somebody that has like a pile of TVs in their basket? I mean, what are you going to do with four TVs? What did you do with the four TVs from last year? Beginning to think maybe TVs might not be the solution to your problem, but... For many, the holiday season actually amplifies sadness. It amplifies brokenness. It's not a time for joy for many people. It's a time for heartache and separation. Which is why this morning I want to show you where we can find real, lasting joy. This morning I want to tell you about the good news of great joy. I want to tell you this morning about the good news of great joy. So let's get to it. Look first, look at the first scene in our story this morning, beginning in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, where Luke first tells us that the good news of great joy is that Jesus was born in a barnyard. The first good news of great joy is that Jesus was born in a barnyard, beginning in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. 
So, so back at the beginning, Luke says that Caesar Augustus required a census. Now, this Caesar's name was actually Octavian. That's which Caesar this is. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. But I want you to notice how Luke amplifies his power and authority. Toward the end of verse 1, he says that Caesar required that all the world be registered. You see, Octavian wasn't just any Caesar. He was one of the most powerful Caesars to ever live. For example, he's credited with ushering in what we would call the Pax Romana, which is that 200-year-long uh, peace in Rome that was mostly kicked off by this Octavian when he essentially subjugated the entire Roman Empire. In fact, he was so admired for his accomplishments that he was the first emperor to be given the name Augustus or revered or holy, which up until then was a name reserved only for the Roman gods. In other words, it was under this ruler, under Caesar Augustus, that, that, that uh, uh, emperor worship was, was really started to take off. It's, it's during this time where we can begin to see inscriptions pop up across Rome calling him the Savior of the world. So Luke is using his full title, Caesar Augustus, on purpose. Because he wants to amplify the immense contrast between this Caesar in verses 1 through 3 and two totally inconsequential peasants in verses 4 through 7. So, so think about what he's saying. On the one hand, you have Caesar Augustus making a rule that the entire world has to obey. And on the other hand, you have a teenage couple who, being eight months pregnant, are, are forced to make a roughly 80-mile journey on the back of a donkey. How do you think that part of Joseph and Mary's honeymoon went? Honey, i got to go to the bathroom again. You kidding me? Really? Yes, this donkey's very bouncy. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. Remember, the, Jesus, the angel told you this, the Lord, that the, this is the Son of God that's making my bladder so small. But finally, you get to Bethlehem, and you find out that Joseph didn't make reservations. But he says, I have a friend who has a place where we can stay. But when Luke says there was no place for them at the inn, that, that word inn, it literally means an untied place in Greek. An untied place. You see, back then, what they would have in small towns like Bethlehem is they would have these communal livestock pens, where, uh, places where they could untie their animals. Meaning uh, each individual owner would build like their own private stall for their animals, but those stalls would border this common corral where the animals could be let go and they would eat and, and drink water and stuff like that, which is why Luke says that Mary put Jesus into a manger or a trough because that's where all of the animals would eat together. So kind of like a, a homeowner near a, a stadium who rents out their driveway during big games for parking, these owners would clean out their individual stalls and, and rent them out to poor people during big festivals and stuff in Jerusalem. But what Luke's saying is there weren't even any stalls left. They'd all been rented out. Which means Joseph and Mary were probably forced to camp in the, in the common corral area with the rest of the animals. Again, that's why Luke says that 
Jesus got laid in a manger. So in contrast to the, to the great Caesar Augustus living in his palace after an 80-ish mile trek on a donkey, there's, there's a teenage girl giving birth to her first child amidst the acrid smell of wet manure and, and hay in the middle of the night in a strange town. And, and just to make sure this is real fun, let's say that your first child is the Son of God. No pressure, right? I mean, how would you feel giving birth with a cow in your face in, in front of a bunch of strangers? Like, I don't think this was really that peaceful scene that we see in the, the, the nativities that we set up. In my experience, this was more like Mary was saying, Joseph, you better get that cow out of my face. You can tell your friend that we're having steak for dinner. But here is the question that Luke is immediately wanting us to answer. All right? Which one sounds better to you? Between Caesar Augustus and a baby in a barnyard, whose help do you want? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, doesn't it really seem like Caesar has the authority and the power and the ability to, to help us when we need help? Wouldn't he be better able to do something? And you're sitting in church, so I, I know you know the right answer. If I were to ask you to be honest, you're going to lie through your teeth. So, so here's how you can know what your answer to that question really is. Which one do you get more emotional about? Which one do you talk more often about? Who, who do you try to convince your peers is more important? A baby in a barnyard or a political leader? Which one are you more anxious about arriving? A baby in a barnyard or a political leader? Because brothers and sisters, as powerful as Caesar Augustus was, what he didn't realize was God was just using him to usher in the greatest joy that the world has ever known. You see, Joseph and Mary lived in a northern town called Nazareth, about three and a half miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. But, but Scripture said that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, the city where David was born. So God used Caesar Augustus' demand for a census to force Joseph and Mary to make that almost 80-mile journey to Bethlehem, meaning God used the power and greed of Rome's greatest emperors... To, to maneuver his king of kings into a position to checkmate the rest of the world. In other words, what appeared to be a show of immense power from Caesar Augustus, listen, was actually the omnipotent sovereignty of God on full display. That's the first scene in our story. That's the good news of great joy, that Jesus was born in a barnyard. Now let's be real. All I did was just say that. That doesn't make it true. I can say the good news of great joy is that Jesus was born in a barnyard all day long, and that doesn't make it true. It doesn't make any sense. So, so why is Jesus being in a corral good news of great joy? 
Well, I want you to look at the second scene, beginning in verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. Luke says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So again, how's that possible? How can these angels show up and say that this baby born in a, in a barn is good news of great joy compared to Caesar Augustus? How can they say that? Well, to answer that question, we first have to understand that our, our view, our perspective of shepherds is, is skewed compared to, to, to the people that first read Luke's letter. You see, when we think of, of shepherds, we think of Psalm 23. And a shepherd that leads me by you know, green pastures and cool water. We think of Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. We think of these noble herdsmen like David, you know, giving their lives for their animals. But, but for the people reading Luke in the first century, you couldn't get much lower than a shepherd. For example, at that time, shepherds couldn't hold public office. In fact, their reputation was so bad that their testimony wasn't even allowed in court. And, and the most pious of Jews wouldn't buy milk or, or wool or kids. I don't mean baby kids, I mean sheep kids. They wouldn't buy sheep, you know, babies from them because it was just assumed that they were stolen. Because back then, a common practice was the shepherds would take their, their herds away from the owners for long periods of time. The owners didn't know how much their herds had grown or not. But the shepherds would take wool and milk and, and kids and, and, and sell them as their own and just pocket the cash. But, but because of their reputation and, and because of all the time that they spent with animals, probably the worst thing about shepherds was they weren't allowed in the temple. Yet, this is crazy. To whom did God decide to proclaim the birth of Jesus first? It wasn't to those who stayed up all night reading the Torah. It wasn't to those who washed their hands 17 times a day or, or fasted extra days of the week. It wasn't to any of them. No, the first people God told Jesus was here was not the ruling elite or the religious leaders. The heralding of the arrival of the Messiah went first to those who literally could not come to God. And here's where we begin to see why the good news of great joy is that Jesus was born in a barnyard. Again, we have to put ourselves in the, the, the shoes of these shepherds to understand this. Like, I wonder if you've ever had this experience. You, it's early in the morning. You're not quite all there yet. You know, you, you're, you're going around trying to get all your stuff together to get out the door. You appreciate the quiet. It's nice. There aren't any interruptions. You get outside. You get in your truck. You make one last check to, to make sure you have everything. You haven't forgotten something. You turn the key. But you have forgotten one very important thing. You have forgotten that the last person to drive your car was one of your teenagers. So you're sitting there in the quiet, 
until you turn the key and the death metal roaring out of the speakers causes a brief yet, yet still embarrassing scream. Maybe you haven't had that experience. But if you've had anything like that where everything was quiet and then everything was loud, then you've had an experience kind of like these shepherds. I mean, imagine the heightened sense of these shepherds. Their job was to, to guard these animals at night, so they're half asleep, but their ears are still finely tuned to the, to the sound of predators walking around there in the dark. Which is why at the end of verse 9, Luke tells us that these shepherds were filled with megaphobos when the angels showed up. Great fear. And this wasn't just a, a jump scare that goes away in a few seconds, like, like my kid's music surprising me in the car. Th this is a fear that not only lingers, but grows. Because listen, the reason these shepherds were filled with such great fear is because the glory of God exposes us for who we really are. The glory of God exposes us for who we really are. You see, until we're confronted with the unyielding perfection of the glory of God, goodness to us is just relative. Meaning, my perception of how good I am is just compared to all of you schmucks. And trust me, when it's my judgment, I'm better. Again, until the glory of God shows up. So back to these shepherds, I've been in enough locker rooms and I've spent enough time around construction guys to make an educated guess that this angel probably didn't interrupt a killer Bible study. Like, I don't think this angel rolled in and these, these shepherds were like, hey, angel surrounded by the glory of God, glad you can make it. Can you explain this passage in Deuteronomy 7 to us? I don't think that's what happened. No, like Isaiah before them and, and like John, the, the Apostle John after them, when, when even the best of sinful men come in contact with the glory of God, they're exposed for who they really are, and it terrifies them. I wonder if the glory of God were to show up in, in this room this morning, why would you be filled with great fear? What, what would be exposed in you? If your mistaken sense of relative goodness was shoved into the presence of the unyielding perfection of God's glory, what sin of yours would be laid bare? Pride? Anger? Adultery? Idolatry? All of the above? Because when the glory of God shows up, what becomes crystal clear is this, he knows and you know that he's perfect and you're not. Which makes verse 10 all the more crazy. The angel of the Lord said to them, fear not. Yeah, right. Like, how am I supposed to fear not when the weight of God's glory lands on me? Well, he says again, the rest of verse 10, for behold, I bring you the good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In other words, listen, the, the reason those shepherds didn't need to be afraid 
wasn't because a savior like Caesar Augustus was going to tell them how to live right from, from a lofty palace. Nor was it because someone like Caesar Augustus was going to take care of all of their issues here on earth. No. The good news of great joy was that a Savior was born in a barnyard, listen, to save people like shepherds. And the same is still true for you and I today. The good news of great joy is that a Savior was born in a barn in order to drive out the terrifying fear of God out of our hearts. Not by reassuring us that we're not that bad. Not, not by God telling us He's going to look past our sin. And certainly not by giving us a new set of rules to follow. No, the good news of great joy is that Jesus Christ was born in a barnyard in order to save people like you and I. And how is that? How's being born in a barn going to save me? Well, well it's because... Unlike Caesar Augustus, instead of saving me from, from something in this world, instead of saving me from disappointment and, and heartache, instead of saving me from poverty or depression, instead of saving me from, from mean people, no, Jesus came to save us from a far greater danger, ourselves. Jesus came to save us from ourselves. The good news is that Jesus Christ was born in a barn so that He could have the blood to shed for our sins. He was born in a barn so He could have air in His lungs that could be suffocated out of Him. He was born in a barn to live the perfect life in exchange for the ones that we've ruined. Listen, from start to finish. Brothers, the, sisters, the reason that is such great joy is because he wants to exchange his perfect life for the ones that we've ruined free of charge, simply for believing you need him to. Look, if that's not great joy, I don't know what is. If, if it's not great joy that our sin is no longer a factor in where we spend eternity, I don't know what is. In fact, what the Bible is telling us is when that truth is re revealed, when, when the power of salvation from God Almighty is revealed in the mud of a barnyard, when that truth is brought to light, that news is so good that Luke says in verse 13 and 14 that multitudes of angels, no longer able to restrain themselves, rend the sky in order to cry out, glory to God in the highest. And we're sitting here Doing nothing. That's great joy. Brothers and sisters, the good news of great joy is that Jesus was born in a barnyard in order to save sinners like you and me by living the perfect life that we can't. And His life is so powerful that it can cover millions of lives. His blood is so powerful it can cover millions of sins. That's the good news of great joy. But look at the last scene in our story, beginning in verse 15. Luke says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. 
Yeah, I bet they wondered. Wondered what they were smoking. Verse 19, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So, so the shepherds go, they find this baby, and they tell everyone what they saw. But verse 20 tells us the shepherds left and returned to what? It's not a trick question. They returned to shepherding. Meaning after all that, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed in their social standing. It's not like all of a sudden after they went and met Jesus, now their testimony is allowed in court or they can go into the temple. It's not like now society trusts them. None of that was fixed. Yet, they left rejoicing. Because here's the thing. The greatest joy of this good news is that Jesus Christ redeems our lives from meaninglessness to purpose. He redeems our lives from the mundane futility that just infects this world. The uselessness of sinful lives. He redeems it. The, the mundane futility that crops up not only on December 26th, but, but all of our suffering and sadness and heartache that seems to have no purpose at all. Jesus Christ redeems our lives from that and gives it all purpose. Let, let me explain what I mean. You see, before Jesus redeems our lives, the only joy we have is the joy that this world has to offer. And that joy is dependent on our circumstances. It's joy that only exists in the absence of sadness and in the absence of heartache, which means it's a weak, fleeting joy. But when the good news of Jesus Christ, it invades our lives, it invades that space that looks for joy in circumstances, in relationships, and even seasons, it invades that space and it, and it fills it with a joy that is so sure, that is so eternal, that's so robust that it exists not only in the absence of heartache and sadness, but listen, in the midst of it as well. Sheep dung, awesome. Did, totally despised in the eyes of society, cool. Can't, can't, can't give testimony, no problem. Because, because now that Jesus Christ has invaded my life, listen, what's happened is he has shifted my perspective. Now, now my perspective is not on the stuff of this world. That's cheap. That's worthless. He, he's shifted my perspective and he's, he's, he's riveted my gaze to, to the grace and to the mercy of Jesus Christ in heaven. And now, because of that, I have joy regardless of my circumstances because my joy is found in heaven and world, you can't touch that. You can try, but, but, but even if you do try to take it from me, Jesus has so redeemed my life that even your best efforts to take my joy only have purpose now. Listen to how Peter says it in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. He says, according to his great mercy, he's talking about God, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is, listen, 
imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, that's you, are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. That's the good news. That's the good news that your life has been redeemed and cannot be touched. So, listen, what does he say? In this, in that redemption, you rejoice. Why? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, because my, because my joy is now anchored in heaven, where, where I and my inheritance are being guarded, all the various trials in this life can do is serve to reveal the genuine testedness of my faith. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in that hope of the glory of God. Listen, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why, why do we rejoice in our sufferings? Well, Paul says, now, because of that work of Christ, Suffering just produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not, does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, the good news of great joy is that Jesus Christ was born in a barn to save people like you and I from ourselves and to give our lives purpose. Now the joy we have is not dependent on our circumstances because it's, it's, it's anchored in heaven. So I want to close with this. I don't know about you, but even though I know this, I, I know this up here, I'm still prone to get this, these kind of crusty edges around my faith, especially this time of year. It's this dryness that comes when, when I get sucked into the manufactured joy our, our, our culture offers and, and it begins to fade. It's a, it's a weariness and a fatigue that creeps up when, when what this world has to offer is once again exposed as a fraud. But look again at, at what these shepherds had in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. You see, when the Lord told them where they could find joy, their response was, Let's go see it. That's it. Let's go see it. They didn't stop and say, Let's debate whether this appearance was theologically sound. No, they didn't say any of that. They didn't say, I don't know, it's going to be a lot of work. I mean, Bethlehem's like two miles away, and what are we going to do with the sheep? No. They said, the Lord said it, let's go see it. And when it comes to our joy, when it comes to the joy our God has promised us in His Word, I want us to be like that. Not just during Christmas, but all year long. Because he's proved himself over and over and over again to be faithful and true to his promises. 
So we can trust that if the Lord says that's where joy is, it's true. So, so even when we are beat down and tired and fatigued by this world, when God tells us in his word where to find joy, I want to be people who say the Lord said it, let's go see it. When we read in the Word of God about the joy found in sacrifice and generosity, I want to be the kind of people that say, let's go see it. When the Lord talks about in His Word the joy found in a submissive wife and a husband who, who sacrifices to wash her and cleanse her with the Word, I want to be the kind of people that says, let's go see it. When we read about the joy found in someone who devotes themselves to God their entire life, I want to be the kind of people that says, let's go see it. Not who says that's going to be hard, that's a lot of work. When we read about the joy that comes from suffering and sacrifice in order to lead others to salvation, I want to be the kind of people that trusts God and says, let's go see it. Because brothers and sisters, our God has already proven himself trustworthy when he delivered on the good news of great joy. That Jesus Christ was born to, to restore joy to the mundane lives of people like you and I. Let's pray.